The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. We've seen that God begins, we've seen that God wars, and now we need the final stage, God wins. He has set forth a whole plan, a plan that proves that he is right, a plan that proves that he is glorious, a plan that proves that he is sovereign and that he is good, a plan that shows his salvation, a plan that shows his son, a plan that involves the entire world, a plan that involves all of history, a plan that involves all of theology. And here's the question, will he deliver it all in the end? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely. The ending always matters. And for the Bible, it's the best ending of all endings. Now, we're going to cover the book of Revelation, but that's not the only book of the Bible that talks about the end. There are a lot of books in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that talk about the end, and for good reason, because it's the end. It's the most important part. It's the part of great hope. It's the part of great expectation. It's the part where everything resolves. Good stories are made whether the ending is good or bad. Well, the Bible isn't just a good story, it's the story. It's the greatest story. It's the story of everything. And so it has the best ending, the most satisfying ending, the most epic ending. And that's where all of this goes for the glory of God. The Bible starts the end, the discussion of the end with the event that we call the rapture. That's the kickoff to all of this. God always begins the big things with a big thing, and that is the nature of the rapture. The rapture is distinct from the second coming of Christ that happens about seven years after the rapture, and there are a lot of ways to see that. For one, Paul describes the rapture as beginning parallel with the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that's an evidence that it's the beginning, it's the initiating point of the rapture. On top of that, it is distinguished from the second coming of Christ proper when he comes down to earth, because from Old Testament to really New Testament, there's been a consistent pattern. It's always been God will gather his people on that last day when the Messiah returns to earth on the ground. People will even, as Isaiah says, carry individuals on their shoulders as they travel to Jerusalem. This is on the ground. This is on the earth. That's what happens. And that's been the consistent pattern in the Old Testament. Even Jesus talks about that in Matthew 24. That's the pattern. But then all of a sudden, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, that we're going to meet Jesus in the air. Now that's different, that's distinct, and that shows that what Jesus will do in his second coming as he comes down to earth and gathers his people to himself is different than the event that we call the rapture where God will gather us into the air. The rapture is what begins it. The second coming is what ends this period of the end, shall we say? And so there is a big kickoff moment, the rapture. God begins this and he removes the church from the situation of this world so that he can fulfill his promises to his people Israel and everything, the way he described it, the way he articulated, the way he framed it, it's going to come to pass. But you can't miss this. Who's at the center of it all? And in Revelation 4 and 5, we learn this, it's Christ. In Revelation 4 and 5, we have a familiar scene, a scene maybe new to some of us, but really it's echoing and reflecting things we've heard before. John sees a throne and God seated on the throne. That should remind us of the book of Isaiah where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord 
seated on a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah is the book about salvation. Isaiah is a book, the book, about God's plan to redeem and to deliver through his suffering servant son. And now we're starting to see that scene play out. But it's not just that scene. You see that God, through Ezekiel, has said something very similar where Ezekiel says, I saw heavens open and I saw a throne, a chariot throne of God. Well, Ezekiel is about the presence of God, how God communes with his people, how his glory will fill the earth, how he will have a relationship with his people. And that now, that theology is connected with Revelation chapter 4. And on top of that, the book of Daniel, Daniel says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. And that throne is like Ezekiel's throne because it's a chariot throne. And Daniel is a book about how God is over every king and every country, and there will be one who is like the Son of Man who reigns forever as the ultimate and final Adam, and that is involved in Revelation 4. And so in Revelation 4, we have a moment. We have a moment that's been anticipated, a moment that's been explained by multiple books of the Bible, a moment about salvation, a moment about God's glory, a moment about God's presence, a moment about every kingdom, every nation, every tribe, and the one to rule over them all, the one to climax all history. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. This is the moment that God has established. And here's the question, who is going to take the scroll? The scroll that is the title deed of the world, the scroll that has every single promise, the scroll that finishes all history. Who is going to take that and finish all of God's plan, all history, all theology, all things about his presence, salvation, and kingdom? Who is worthy to do that? And there's no one. There's no one except one the one who began the plan, the one who was foretold by the plan, the one who drives the plan from Old Testament to New Testament, the one who is fulfilled in the New Testament, that plan, the one who functions as the center of what the church proclaims, that one because he fulfilled it all, because he's the center of it all, because he's done it all, because he's bought it all by his own blood on the cross and his resurrection, that one is worthy and that one receives all glory and honor and praise and that one is the center of everything. That one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that we see, this isn't just the moment that everybody's been waiting for because everything hinges on this moment. This is the moment that God the Father has been waiting for because finally his son is so honored and the sacrifice his son made is so dignified and so rewarded and so lauded because he is there and he takes the scroll and he alone, there is no one in all history and in all creation who has the right to open these seals but him. He is alone the hero and he is the one who receives all glory and it is all about him. Don't miss the ending. It is about the fullness of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he opens those seals and it starts everything. He's sovereign over all things in the end. We might think that the end time sounds like a crazy time, that things are out of control. No, they're totally in control. They're in control by the Son of God, the one who bought us with his own blood and rose from the dead. They're under his control, his exclusive control as he opens each of the seals of this scroll. And it's not just unleashing judgment, although that's true, it's even unleashing salvation as we see in the book of Revelation because there's 144,000 who are saved and sealed and who witness to the nations and a great multitude comes in as we see in Revelation chapter seven. 
On top of that, these seals give way to another series of judgments. We call them the trumpet judgments because they're announcing, they're warning about what God is going to do. And here's what's fascinating about the trumpet judgments. And it just shows you what Jesus is all about here. They are in the order, that is the trumpet judgments, of creation. They're in the reverse order of creation. They are a decreation of this world. We are taking apart everything in this creation. That's what Jesus is doing so that everything can be rebuilt the way Jesus desires. You could think of it this way. This is an extreme world makeover. This is an extreme world makeover. And Jesus is taking it all down to prove that he is all right and can make every single thing right. And there is judgment in that. Now, in the midst of this, this period, which actually lasts for seven years, Daniel says that in Daniel chapter 9, and Revelation affirms it in Revelation, say, chapters 10 and 11 and 12. But in the middle of this period of time, we learn of the ascension of the Antichrist, that he takes power. And there are terrible things that happen in this time. People will starve to death because of what the Antichrist does, amongst all other kinds of things that he does to persecute God's own people that are getting saved at this time. And we might wonder, what in this total disaster is evil winning? Well, Revelation reminds us, that God is still in control at this time and that God is still sovereign at this time and God's purpose is still advancing this time. And in Revelation 14, we learn there are people who resist. There are people who do not fall and succumb to compromise. There are people who persevere through this time. There are people who maintain their integrity and maintain their fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ, not because they're good or powerful in and of themselves, but because God preserved them. God strengthened them. And what is the lesson to be learned there? Even in the worst of times, even when literally all hell breaks loose, God knows how to sustain his own. And if he knows how to do that in the end, he knows how to do that right now. Take courage, take courage. But in any case, God is advancing his plan. He is judging, he's in control, he's announcing, he is decreating to recreate. He is sovereign even over evil at this time. And it all moves to a final set of judgments, a final set which are the bull judgments that we see in Revelation. Why a bull? Well, just like a trumpet announces things, the bull judgments show the satisfaction of God's wrath. They show that his desire for justice will be satiated, that he will have his way, that he will even have vengeance on those who persecuted those whom he loves, his own people. And that's what we see. He levels judgment after judgment after judgment. As he pours out these bowls of wrath against the world, it takes down Babylon's both religious system, which is a one-world apostate system, a spirituality that is an amalgam of all false religions in the world. It takes that out because that's an affront to God and a persecutor of his people. And even as it takes out the social, political, and economic city of Babylon and decimates that to demonstrate that the whole world system in its theology and in its practicality and its pragmatics, all of it bows the knee before God. He wins. That's what we see. And all of this moves toward a moment in heaven where the saints are rejoicing with God. Why are the saints there? Those who have passed away and also those who have been raptured. They're all there together with God, celebrating what God is about to do as he comes down from heaven to earth to finish the job. And that's what Jesus does. He comes in riding on a white horse, triumphant over all. And the whole world 
scroll gathers, and with the sword of his mouth, he takes them all out. He is called in Revelation 19, the word of God. Why? Because the word in John's theology is what began. In the beginning was the word. And so in the end, who will finish the job? the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 19. Everything will come to a halt. He will take them all down with the word of his own mouth. He will win. Evil will be defeated. Satan is thrown into prison for a thousand years. Why a thousand years, you might ask? Well, a thousand years because during this time, we call it the millennial kingdom, People will live, people will survive, people will thrive. Every promise will be fulfilled. The world will be restored. After all, Jesus was decreating the world to recreate it the way it was supposed to be. And we will see how people will flourish at this time. But why a thousand years within that? Because no man, no person has lived for longer than a thousand years. No one. Methuselah lived 969, close, but not close enough. And what we learn though here, and what we see though here in the millennial kingdom is that people in this thousand years, they'll live through the whole thousand years. They'll live through the whole thousand years without a problem. This is prophesied in Isaiah. This is prophesied in Zechariah. And why does that matter? Because it shows then that God has truly conquered over sin and Satan and death. People lived maybe 969 years in a fallen world, but they couldn't live beyond that. Here, they live even further than that, and there's many that do. Why? Because God has restrained sin. He has triumphed over it. Well, that being said, Satan is released after 1,000 years. And you might say, why? Why would God do that? Because, here's the question, God has begun. He has warred. He has won. But could it ever happen again? Could, could the fall ever take place again? You did have a past perfect creation that fell and an innocent creation that fell. Could, could, could that ever happen again? At the end, could that ever take place? Could history repeat itself? And so God releases Satan and Satan deceives the nation just like Eve was deceived earlier in the book of Genesis. And the question is, well, maybe Genesis 3 is gonna happen all over again. But here's what happens instead. Fire comes down from heaven. And before anyone capitulates, before there's any fall, before there is any true effect of anything that has happened, fire comes down from heaven and ends it all. Why? Because there's a true Elijah on the throne. Why? Because there's a true king on the throne. Why? Because we're talking about first creation and there is the final Adam on the throne. And this Adam, unlike the first Adam, this one does not fail. This one does not falter. This one does not fall. He is the true one. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that drove the end. He is the one that returned in the end and conquered. And he is the one who will always ensure that there will never be a fall again. Everything has finished and it has finished well. With that, there is the new heavens and earth as everything is transformed into total perfection. And it is a constant remembrance. The new Jerusalem is a constant remembrance. It's a museum of God's redemption as we celebrate and we remember and we see all these different things in there that recall that God began, that God warred, and that God won. It is a testimony to his son, the ultimate savior, the suffering servant, the Lord of Lord, the King of 
kings, the final Adam, the triumphant one, and forever we adore that God, the God of the big picture who has accomplished all these things in his son, even working through us in the church for his glory. That's how the story ends, and it's the most beautiful story of all because it not only is the story of everything, but it is how God made all things right for the glory of his name as he has always been and will always do. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.